Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we scrape against the fence of knowledge, much to the concern of Spanish sheep herders everywhere. I'm Mia. And I'm Salem. And today we're talking about prion disease, or prion disease, because it's a funny pronunciation occasionally, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> what are prions, and why are they the primary cause of my nightmares ever since we started researching <laughs> this episode? We'll find out all about that and more in today's episode. But before all of that, quick content warning, I guess. We're going to talk about some weird shit in this episode. Mm-hmm. Like, there's going to be, weirdly, some, like, child abuse mention. Um, yeah, so, you know, if you're sensitive to that, maybe... I mean, feel free to skip this episode. Uh, we're also going to talk about cannibalism. If you know anything about uh, prions, as they're also called, you might know that they are connected to cannibalism. Um, so, again, s- sensitive topic... Uh, you know, feel free to skip this episode if that's not up your alley. And with that said, we also have another segment before we actually start the episode. <laughs> How have you been? Uh, what have you done with yeah, your life? Yeah, what I've are you been... doing in my house? <laughs> um, I've been good. We've been doing this. I've been doing a lot of bioinformatics. I have a bioinformatics course in school. And it's really interesting. We're doing a lot of Python coding. And I've had Python... Uh, classes before, like programming classes, and it has not typically gone down well, Uh, but now, for some reason, the gods (laughs) are smiling in my direction, and I'm actually writing scripts that work, which is incredibly, incredibly exciting. That's nice. Um, Yeah, so I'm using Python, I'm using, like, Ubuntu, Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, I'm working with, like, command, um, like, command, what's it called? Um, command center, you know the know. yeah whatever the command prompt window. Yes, I'm working. Yeah, Something I mean you like can that. you can tell how much I know about computers, but I'm al- I'm able to open it up. I'm able to do bioinformatics things mm-hmm. in it. I'm able to go back to Python and do things there <laughs> and upload you files. Get to do science. I get to do like data analysis. It's mm-hmm. really really exciting. So that's kind of been my life. How have you been? I've been good. I've been. Uh, I keep saying that I may keep making videos, which is true. <laughs> it's um, not. It's not news it's at not this news point. Anymore, but like I'm doing. I'm going to work. Yeah. Um, but I, in relating to that, I've actually found like a studio space because mm-hmm. right now I'm recording like my videos at home, which is fine. Like most, a lot of people do that, but it's also like you can only do so much with like four inches of space between sort of the bed and the bedroom wall. <laughs> like, you can't do that much. But now I, I actually have a studio space. So all my future videos, I mean, for the foreseeable future anyway, are going to be shot at, like, a professional studio location. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's going to be really cool. That's nice. Like, you're taking your career up another level. I guess getting a studio is kind of like a step up. Yeah. I mean, some people, I guess, they get famous enough where they have a studio at home. Mm-hmm. I, I can't afford that. Mm-hmm. I can I mean, maybe at some point. At but, some point, but yeah. Right but now. right now, my home is my home, and it's nice to have, like, a studio space where I can, like, work yeah. separately. And it also has podcasting, like, capabilities. So we're, we're probably still going to record from home, from the yep. kitchen. Um, but, you know, it, it, there, it, there are possibilities in this space. Mm. And I, can, I think that that's kind of fun. I think that's cool. Yeah, I think... I quite enjoy recording from home because we go from, like, writing notes, uh, like, eating breakfast, writing notes into recording, like, in the span of, like, an hour, (laughs) Mm -hmm. let's say. Um, If we were to go to a studio, we'd have to, like, 
you know, pack up all our shit in a bag, get on the bus, like ride the bus for an hour, go to the studio, like unpack. I think the recording at home gives you a lot more flexibility, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely an option. So Mm -hmm. if we decide to maybe, you know, start investing more time in this or, you know, whatever might happen, maybe we'll, uh, we'll take it to the studio. Maybe. I, I mentioned earlier today that we could go full Joe Rogan. Um, yeah. if we if we like decided to invite like in-person physical guests to this which i don't I, medical history podcast i don't think do that as much mm-hmm. like you're gonna invite some like i love like scientists who work like discover like new proteins and like advanced stuff in science i don't think a lot of them are like that super charismatic like on like in a podcast format, mm-hmm. like they have their lane, right? Mm-hmm. Science, which is so much better than our lane or mm-hmm. my lane specifically. You mm-hmm. are in that lane. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like the podcast lane is a different lane. And yeah. yeah, a I, lot of scientists yeah. lack this like... Um, Charisma. It feels so bad to say it, but well, I mean, the, a lot of scientists yeah. could, could benefit from like some lessons on, you know, speaking about mm. what you do, about your research, mm. about... What you know in like an interesting way and a yeah. captivating way. I mean, I mean that's why people like science communicators because mm-hmm. like science communicators. That's their whole job. That's their whole gig of like yeah. trying to communicate like yeah. that vast distance. I guess that's what are we science communicators? Yeah. Holy shit! I mean, I I mean, I, mean, I guess we kind yeah, of we are communicating science. We are. We are. I think. Yeah. I mean, you usually take the history part and I take the science part. So yeah. I think I'm more the science communicator. You're the history communicator. <laughs> but Well, history is a science. <laughs> Silence in the studio today, folks. <laughs> well, with that said, let's dig into uh, the episode. But not yet, because we still have to thank Wait, this... our lovely patrons. We're edging you now, dear this listeners. This intro has so many layers. It's like an onion. We're just peeling the layers one by one. Listen, all good things come to those who wait. Mm-hmm. And those who have waited the longest are, of course, our dear patrons. <laughs> we want to thank all of our patrons. And specifically, we want to thank Emily Pinkett. Thank you, Emily, for your contribution. We really appreciate it. And this episode goes out to you. Yeah. All patrons also get access to episodes early in video format uh, that they can watch on their lovely YouTube devices, whatever <laughs> that may be for you. You also get the chance for an in, like in-episode shout-out like we just did. Mm-hmm. And they also get access to notes. Yeah, that just if you are interested in supporting us, check out uh, Patreon. There's yeah. a few other uh, fun rewards that you haven't mentioned. Otherwise, we hope you enjoyed this episode. So I think most people know about prions, at least a little bit. Maybe in relation to cannibalistic rituals, cannibalistic like brain-eating habits of mm-hmm. certain tribes, um, and then the illness that occurs as a, as a result. But how do prions work exactly? This is what I'm going to be talking about in this section. Well, prions are infectious agents, uh, but what's interesting about them is that they're not alive. And You know, we've talked about viruses in the past, and viruses are not alive either. But prions are even less alive. They're hella not alive. (laughs) They're so not alive. They're they're, because they're because they're not like a like a being, right? They're Mm. actually just proteins. But what's even more interesting about them is that they're misfolded proteins. So in order to understand how this works and why it's important and how a misfolded protein can cause such illness. 
we have to understand how proteins look and why the folding is actually important. Mm -hmm. I have seen you do your homework mm -hmm. occasionally and I have seen like protein folding. Mm -hmm. Like if you showed me a, a protein and a misfolded protein, you could not tell, you could, I would not be able to tell you which one is like the I mean, the they, they look pretty similar, right? Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about proteins. It's, this is, you know, quite kind of like basic information, but it's pretty mm -hmm. fundamental to understanding like protein function. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, I, I need, I, I, bar I barely know. I failed. Again, I, I, I failed high school biology so bad. So proteins are made up of a long string of amino acids. There's 20 amino acids in total, like 20 different kinds. And the protein ultimately folds in a very complicated way and takes a very specific shape that corresponds to its location in the body and its function. And if you've ever seen a 3D structure of a protein, it almost looks like a crumpled up ball of paper in the end. Yeah. But the folding pattern is really important and it's purposeful. Proteins, uh, if I mean, you probably know this, but proteins are a big reason why bodies work. They maintain the structural integrity of cells. They are involved in cell communication. They make up antibodies and play a role in the immune system, um, as well as regulate gene expression. And so if they're misfolded, they can't fulfill their function, which can be catastrophic. Mm. A lot of congenital illnesses are really just a specific type of protein being misfolded and its function going unfulfilled, which as you know, can lead to the body basically falling apart. Yeah. Now, after knowing this, you can imagine where I'm getting at with the prions. So the whole thing with the disease-causing prions is that not only are they misfolded themselves, but they also misfold normal prions in their path. So these misfolded proteins form amyloid aggregates in the brain, which is basically huge protein clusters that choke out normal brain functions and cause the death of healthy cells. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is also the pathogenic mechanism of other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's. Those also have amyloid plaques that form in the brain and like destroy the tissue. Mm -hmm. The prion misfolding also leads to the formation of vacuoles in neurons. Vacuoles are normal organelles and cells that are involved in the removal of waste. But when too many are formed, the cells die. This causes the brain tissue to look spongy and full of holes. Also, here I want to make a point. Not all prion proteins are infectious agents. In fact, the proteins that make up prions are found throughout the bodies of healthy humans and animals. In their non-modified form, prion proteins are found in the membranes of cells, and they are thought to regulate neural precursor proliferation during embryonic development. They regulate neurogenesis in adults, maintain long-term memory, help with stem cell renewal, and play a role in innate immunity. However, sometimes something happens and these normal prions decide to basically ruin everybody's day. Um, and what they do is actually very simple. The modified prion acts as a template upon which the normal prion is refolded with the help of another protein. And now, knowing this, you might wonder, how does this happen? Yeah, why like, does this start? Why, where does it start? Um, who, and the, who started this, this trend? <laughs> the answer is actually really simple. It's a mutation. As it often is the case with proteins, this is caused by more than 20 mutations in the prion gene. So it can be any one of them that, oh, can, that can lead to this happening. And these mutations can be inherited or can be sporadic, meaning that one can get it from their parents or can develop the mutation randomly. Yeah. Terrifying, Terrifying. by the way. Horrific. <laughs> Um, I think it's one in a million, though, that it happens. So it's, it's a pretty low chance of a mutation like that happening. Yeah, but um, as we will... Because they can like become infectious, right? Yeah. Like, it can they spread. They kind of stay, exactly. They kind of stay. 
in the environment also. <laughs> Which I'm going to get to this a bit later, like in my, in my segments, but like that's, that to me like goes against God. <laughs> like that's not how nature is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. Like we have bacteria and viruses. I get the, how those spread, right? But this is basically like one of your cells, a healthy, normal cell mm -hmm. can just turn bad and start infecting other people with something that turns your brain into a sponge. Mm -hmm. Like, no, that's it's... not good. That's incorrect. So someone did a someone did a bad on this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's why prions are so scary. Yeah, um, both how they like how they become infectious yeah. and also how easy they infect others. Yeah. Um, but so the mutation was one of the the things that can happen, but the prion protein can also misfold spontaneously. <laughs> so it might not even be caused by a mutation. They can just, <laughs> just like, like yeah. Um, there's not, I think we, there's still some um, knowledge gaps in how prion works. Mm -hmm. So there's still research being done. We don't know everything about them, mm -hmm. but it's, it's out yeah. there. It's an, but like, um, it, it, this is a fairly recent discovery too, like prions existing mm -hmm. generally. Mm -hmm. Like we, like the, the person who discovered them is it's still, still alive. alive. Mm -hmm. I've sent him an email and... <laughs> they no, declined to be on the podcast. <laughs> they declined to be on the podcast. No comment has been received yet. Uh, I mean, I sent it like an hour ago. So. Did you actually send an email? No, but I'm going to. Okay. I am, I am going to send it. When you listen to this episode, dear listener, we will have contacted the person who discovered the prion. And, and if they reply, I'll record a separate instance of the thing that we can like paste into the finished episode. So what you are you going to say to them? Oh, I don't know. I don't know, I guess we'll find out. Don't bother the nice lady. <laughs> as far as the specific illnesses that prions cause, they cause a family of disease called transmissible spongiform encephalopathy. <laughs> um, I'm having trouble saying that word, but I think I got it. It's a big word. It's... I mean, for, I mean, I can't pronounce it. There's a reason why I'm, I'm not saying this part. Anyway, they're called TSEs for short, uh, which is probably what I'm going to say. And they include scrapie in sheep, chronic wasting disease in deer, which is a horrifying name mm -hmm. for an illness, mad cow disease, and Creutzfeldt-Jacob disease in Kuru and humans. Mm -hmm. um, these are not all of them, by the way. I just wanted to kind of give an overview. A common characteristic of these diseases is that they affect the structure of the brain and other neural tissue. They're all progressive. They will have no effective treatment and they're all fatal. One hundred percent, by the way. They also have a pretty long incubation period of between 5 to 20 years, after which symptoms appear and develop rapidly. Symptoms include convulsions, dementia, ataxia, which uh, means impaired balance and coordination, and behavioral and personality changes. Now, if this all wasn't scary enough, uh, here's a kicker with prions. They are extraordinarily infectious. Yeah. In animals, the main mode of infection is through ingestion of sick flesh or infected water, as prions can be deposited in the environment through the remains of dead animals and via urine, saliva, and other body fluids. Mm -hmm. This is why I never, like, I'm super scared of eating, like, berries in the woods, because mm -hmm. um, it's like, God, what if a deer died here? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, it's really paranoid. It's, extre yeah. ex it's extremely paranoid, but I'm really scared. But the good news is that, like, cross- Animal contamination is yeah. exceptionally rare. Yeah, especially with like uh, chronic wasting disease, mm -hmm. they can affect other deer, but I don't. I don't think it can cross the humans. There's a. I think there's like concern about it, mm -hmm. but I don't think any confirmed cases have yeah. happened yet. Yeah, exactly. Fun fact, by the way, chronic wasting disease, also called zombie deer disease, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. the official second name for it. <laughs> 
so prions can be deposited in the environment and it can it can be uh you know like a, if, a, if a sick deer like pees in the water and another deer like drinks from that water then the second deer is going to get infected but here's another thing prion proteins can also bind to clay particles and linger in the soil so for example grass that grows on soil where uh, a sick animal died may take up the misfolded proteins and transmit them further to herbivores. A study in 2011 that was looking at scraping infection in mice also found that airborne prions can spread on aerosol particles and That's... infect the mice. Oh, nah. So the fact that they, nah. they, they stay in the soil and the plants take them up. Yeah. And you can get infected by eating those plants. Mm -hmm. And they are also like on aerosol particles. Like that's so fucking scary to yeah. me. That's horrific. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and, and I think I mentioned it because they're also like hard to destroy. So like mm -hmm. they last. I in will. The, yeah. I will talk about oh. that too. But I do want to say like I don't want to panic anyone because it doesn't seem like prion disease is like an, you know, impending like foreseeable. <laughs> like it's <laughs> like not, the new pandemic. It, exactly. Like no. we're not going to have like a prion pandemic. No. Um, but it's just, you know, reading about them and, and seeing like how... Uh, hard to dis destroy they are how easy trans easily transmissible they are how dangerous they are it like it's a little spooky mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a little spooky <laughs> it's a little spooky yeah and like i said about the destruction before i give the word to you um i wanted to talk a bit about the last thing about prion which you've also mentioned which is how difficult it is to get rid of them so an adequate treatment needs to make sure that the protein doesn't just bounce back to its um to its misfolded form because a lot of proteins do that like you can try to destroy them but they will just kind of like become a long string again and then fold back so you want to make sure <laughs> that whole no 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 no. <laughs> they do that okay but because i just had the idea that like okay they're kind of they're kind of tough this to me is like the term this is like terminator 2 uh -huh. where, where you go like you destroy it into multiple parts and just like come back together yeah Nah, so. Yeah, so you have to make sure that the treatment destroys it enough where it's not gonna like, you know, piece itself mm -hmm. back together. But so they're resistant to proteases, which are proteins that break down other proteins. They're also resistant to heat. They're resistant to ionizing radiation and formaldehyde. They're like tough as shit. And formaldehyde. Mm -hmm. But uh, the good news is they can be degraded with strong bases like caustic soda and bleach or strongly acidic detergents. So, you know, if you see a weird looking deer in your backyard uh, that died, um, I mean, first of all, you should probably call like like foresters or yeah. I don't even know who you would call like animal control. No, like rangers. Yeah. Rangers. You should probably not touch the deer. No. Um, but for, you, for many reasons. I think prion is maybe like far down on the list of reasons why you don't touch the rotting deer in your yard. But like, that's also a big reason. God, when I was a teenager, I, um, I was, I had a lot, like I was very interested in like bones <laughs> and I was, I would go and yep. like touch and roadkill. <laughs> go and nobody, touch and, touch nobody and told me to not touch roadkill. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, call, call the rangers. Mm. But, you know, good news is you can probably destroy most of them with uh, with some of these, like, strongly acidic, strongly basic compounds. Mm. And um, rangers probably also know what to do. Like, if, yeah, if, if it sure. does by chronic waste and disease, I think they sort of know to sort of, okay, we gotta... And they, they know what to look out for. Mm -hmm. They know what to look out mm. for. Um, I looked at some pictures of deer and they... 
you know, deer who died of chronic wasteland disease. And I mean, they look a little bit like mangy, like a little bit skinny and, yeah. you know, they, they don't look like they had a very nice life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think a little it would, rough. they look a little rough. I think it's because they can't like feed themselves by the end. But it's also kind of hard to know. Like maybe this was just like kind of a skinny deer. <laughs> so I think that the rangers might also be able to identify, uh, you know, yeah. what what the deer actually suffered from. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to mention this like way later too when I talk about like uh, chronic wasting disease like currently. Mm -hmm. um, but one symptom that I said that, that, that I saw that rangers can use is they can check the teeth mm -hmm. because they grind their teeth. Oh, like like right. repetitively like throughout right, right, like right, for right. days and days and days i think they do um, they don't they get stuck in these like repetitive motions yeah so like, they, like with they, the sheep you're probably going to talk about yeah. that too yeah mm. um but like like yeah it's like they, they get into weird patterns that they yeah. just repeat over and over again so like and that causes certain types of damage that they can check i think uh, but yeah. the teeth is apparently like a big one for deer mm -hmm. so interesting well I will end this section by saying I hope you never find a deer that died of chronic wasting disease in your yard. God. That's... But if you do, call your ranger. If you do. They say. So, these are zombie... This zombie matter that causes terrifying nightmares in my dreams. Um, how did we discover them? How did we figure out that they like existed in the world? Um, well, that is a very interesting story, and it kind of reads like a creepypasta yeah. about like mystery brain holes that no one knows the cause of, that seemingly like appear randomly throughout the world. Horrific. Now, obviously, uh, prion diseases have existed for as long as protein folding has, so like the diseases themselves aren't new, so I assume that these have been around for at least like 60, 75 years. Yeah. Um, You're not wrong. I'm not wrong. <laughs> And while prions are a fairly recent discovery, some theorize that it's actually mentioned by our boy Hippocrates uh, in his work, The Sacred Disease, where he describes uh, neurological diseases in ghosts. It's not the only thing he describes. He talks about like epilepsy too in humans, but he, he mentions goats mm -hmm. as part of that. Uh, and he quotes, If you cut open the head of a goat, you will find the brain moist, very full of dropsy, and of an evil odor. Hmm, I have questions. Yes. <laughs> so why was the book called The Sacred Disease? Yes, The Sacred Disease. The Sacred Disease that he's referring to is something we would today probably call epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Why did he call it sacred? I th I, 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 you can't quote me on this because ancient Greek is, not, uh, Greece is not my forte, but I think it had something to do with the fact that they thought like neurological issues were sort of like you had been touched by the gods, mm, okay. sort of like... For sure. And, being touched by the gods is not great. <laughs> like that, that'll mess you up you, a little bit. You don't want to be put, touched by the gods. Especially like Sounds Greek cooler gods. Than it is. <laughs> if you get touched by the Greek gods, you either end up pregnant or like epilepsy. Epilepsy. Yeah. And this like evil odor and full of dropsy, that could be a reference to brain edema, which is a common symptom in prion diseases. And studies have shown that goats and sheep in the area were extremely susceptible to prion disease in the Middle Ages. So in theory, it is possible that he was referring to prions in ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. Like, it's entirely possible, um, even though we don't have any like hard proof. But it's it's possible that this is a reference. And speaking of sheep, that's actually where the story of their sort of mystery beginning uh, discovery starts in earnest. In the 1700s, 
Sheep in Spain were afflicted with a strange illness that caused excessive licking and itching, causing sheep to scrape against fences as well as swaying movements and sometimes convulsions. This was called scrapey because of the scraping, Mm because they scraped, and caused huge problems for sheep herders all over Europe as many sheep became sick and died. And this actually became an epidemic after sheep were exported from Spain into the UK and like throughout Europe, and mostly into, into the UK. And around this time, in the 1700s, early 1800s, we're just starting to understand like what proteins are and how bacteria works and like potentially like what a virus is. But scrapey didn't act like anything that we previously understood. It didn't spread along conventional lines and generally had strange symptoms compared to other diseases. There was no like inflammation or fever, but these sheep still got sick and died. So doctors are like, well, hold on. We know about all sorts of diseases and like kinds of diseases, but they're not... What? Yeah, like What's this happening? is very different. It doesn't act like everything else that we know. Exactly. And it's also like, because they know it's spreading from sheep to, from sheep populations into other sheep populations. Because as the like, sheep are exported into the UK, like British sheep are starting to get like Scrapey too. But, you know, it spreads weird. It's a mystery. And this left Scrapey as a mystery disease, which led two scientists in the 1930s called Quill and Shell, they're French, I couldn't find their full names to save my life, I'm sorry. Um, after like two centuries of tests and experimentation, they concluded that scrapey was caused by a slow virus. Do you know what the difference was between a slow virus and like a virus? Yes. Uh, so this was an idea uh, also called an unconventional virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea was that almost all viruses cause like uh, an immune response, but a slow virus doesn't and mm-hmm. has a very long incubation time. And the idea was that because it had such a long incubation time, it sort of like changed the body to sort of like accept it, it, sort of. And that's why there was no inflammation or like swelling or fever or things like that. That's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting theory. Must have been really disappointed when when they realized that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. When I, I, I guess when did they, I guess they were still around when they found out what actually happened. I in the don't 1930s. Know. They probably were. They may, they may have been. And a similar disease in humans was actually described by the neurologist Hans Gerard Kreutzfeldt and Alphonse Maria Jacob in 1920, with similar strange symptoms and uh, epidemiology. This too was distributed to a slow virus, and today is called Kreutzfeldt-Jacob's disease, or CJD, and was also like put into this category of slow virus diseases that also had like no explainable cause didn't look at like anything else but it was they connected it to scrapey they knew that like these these are similar but we don't know what joins them now that's the backstory now a quick shift to the 1950s because in papua nugia there's a mystery disease going around which was called kuru now you're gonna dig into kuru and like what it is how it works um, a bit more of a history, but it forms a solid piece of the puzzle of discovery, so I'm going to mention it very quickly here, and you can sort of dig into the details. A doctor called Carlton Gadjusek came there to study the disease and to test it, trying to find out the cause of it. And Kuru essentially caused, like, like similar like neurological damage, like swaying, uh, like impulsive movements, but no inflammation, no swelling, no fever, so they knew that this was one of these mystery diseases. And uh, Carlton, he figures out that it has to spread through neural tissue because he infected some chimpanzees with neural tissue. And three years later, he started seeing the same symptoms like crop up, which 
prompts the question, how does neural tissue spread within a population? That's a mystery. That I guess we will, we will talk about later. <laughs> we'll talk about uh, foreshadowing. Um, this actually won him a Nobel Prize because he sort of figured out like, hey, we this is the first step to figuring out like what causes a mystery disease because they also figured that like this acts like Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease and scrapie. And now they know like, okay, it has to do with neural tissue. Bang, Nobel Prize. Good job. And it's actually not the only Nobel Prize uh, like winner in this episode. But Kuru, being the most recent slow virus and something that seemed to spread in humans, made this discovery pretty critical in future developments and figuring out the real cause of the disease. Although, let's not put this guy on too much of a pedestal, uh, because during his trips to the South Pacific to study these diseases, he also invited up to 50 young boys back to the US and sponsored them with a high school education while they lived at his house. And after some of these boys grew up, uh, he was accused and convicted of child molestation uh, and had afterwards spoken openly about his approval of pederasty and also incest for some reason. Mm -hmm. So did good with the neuronal discovery. Yeah. Kind of whiffed it, mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of ruined his own name. Yeah. Um, I think you mentioned something about him being him approving of like the Greek model of uh, of academia of mentoring young boys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. No more to say. On no that more topic. to say. Dark. Uh, bad guy, essentially. But uh, that story actually influenced, like, um, inspired a book that you mentioned. Yeah. That was really good. Yeah, I actually read this book a few months ago called The People in the Trees. She also wrote A Little Life, which is probably one of her more uh, well-known books. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she, she wrote a story that is quite, like closely inspired by by this yeah. whole um, you know thing with the with the doctor and the uh, the natives in mm -hmm. Papua New Guinea so if you're if you find the story interesting I really recommend the book it's really good and if you've liked maybe a little life uh, you know this is a good book to mm. to continue with that sort of writing mm. I just uh, I just figured I would throw that in there because yeah, I remember sure. we talked about it earlier. yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's really interesting I didn't even realize until today that, yeah <laughs> that this book was inspired from that yeah but Carlton all bad ideas aside uh, he attributed this to a slow virus or what he called an unconventional virus much like earlier scientists had described scrapie or Creutzfeldt Jacobs disease but this eventually led to another man called Stanley Prisoner to tackle the question, what the hell is causing this? What on earth is going on? And he decided to try to find the virus responsible because remember, like the entire like medical academia basically assumes that this has to be some sort of virus and he doesn't find it. He suffers much failure. His goal was to find the component of a virus in those cases of various low illnesses, but he, he couldn't find any. He actually ended up losing his research funding because it eventually seemed completely hopeless. Like, they nada results. They couldn't find anything. Nothing. Yeah. And here's a quote from him. I had anticipated that the purified scrapie agent would turn out to be a small virus and was puzzled when the data kept telling me that our preparations contained protein but not nucleic acid. About this time, I was informed by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute that they would not renew their support and by UCSF that I would not be promoted to tenure. That sucks, but like that's kind of the reality of being an academic. Yeah. You know, if you don't find anything, you lose your you lose your funding. Uh, it, um, but and, it really sucks. Yeah, and like it, apparently he had a really hard time. Yeah. Like his his friends and family like. No, I mean for came sure. I mean him. you know a lot of academics like dedicate their entire lives to finding 
specific yeah. things and then just don't no, find it don't find anything yeah it's really heartbreaking really mm -hmm. so and he he had to sort of beg to get tenure and he managed to get it but he lost basically all of his public funding and he had to rely on private sources but not getting anywhere he actually published uh, an article in 1982 saying listen folks i'm not finding any nucleic acid i I don't, I'm not finding any viruses here, mm -hmm. but I am finding a lot of weird proteins. So I'm going to call these weird proteins prions, based on a, like a, an amalgamation of protein and infection. Now this is pretty good science because he had ruled out literally every other possibility, so he was like, this, it's got to be an entirely new biological agent. And the scientific community was outraged by this, because it wasn't something that like they had known before. Apparently this led to death threats and harassment <laughs> by the virology community, uh, so at least it's good to know that even scientists are just as bad as people on Twitter. <laughs> That's they were, really funny. And like apparently there were like dozens of other like high-standing academics that were studying like slow virus diseases who were like, oh, nah. Because I mean, well, like I get it. Because it like throws off your whole research too. You, then you have to be. Then you have to change everything. Everything. Like your entire worldview. People. It's not just the worldview, but people prepare for years mm -hmm. to start like you know research projects so then to have a guy come in and say like hey the thing that you're studying actually does not exist <laughs> it doesn't exist um and the way you're going about it is entirely wrong mm -hmm. like of course you're gonna be upset <laughs> you're gonna be so angry yeah but using this as a base basically the entire medical field started trying to like review his results trying to study slow virus diseases as a protein and after years and years of people saying that he was wrong no one could actually mm -hmm. prove it no one could ever prove him wrong no one ever found any virus matter that could explain the diseases and everyone just kept finding proteins, eventually coming to the understanding that prions are misfolded proteins, uh, something that Stanley didn't know himself, uh, but like he laid the groundwork for. And this led to prion diseases becoming more understood and led to Stanley Prisoner winning a Nobel Prize too, um, <laughs> because he just found a completely new like biological agent. Mm -hmm. And there's no child molestation in this time, so this guy we can like. <laughs> Good job, Stanley. This man got the Leechfest seal of approval. Stamp. Love the uh, the redemption arc. Like it's, I mean, it's, it's really sad to hear when somebody loses their research funding. Yeah. Cannot start like like their whole research project mm -hmm. goes to shit. Um, you know, so has, I'm has glad... to rely on public funding. Yeah, exactly. Like, so especially yeah. like hearing that he took it really hard. Like I'm, I'm happy for him. You know what? I, I, I'm happy for him. I love it. Good for him. Good for him. It's an underdog story that, we, that everyone can enjoy. Everybody, everybody loves an underdog story. Mm -hmm. And all of this was really good timing too, because right around the corner was an epidemic about to happen. Alright, Mia, you've mentioned Kuru a bit when you talked about the discovery. Yeah. And I want to expand on Kuru in particular, because like I said in the in my intro, in my first section, it's pretty enmeshed with sort of pop culture knowledge mm -hmm. about cannibalism and prion disease in mm -hmm. particular. So Kuru, which falls under the family of transmissible spongiform encephalopathies and is very similar to Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, was first discovered in the 1950s when Australian gold prospectors went to New Guinea, to Papua New Guinea, to investigate for gold. And discovered that about a million people lived there. <laughs> they just found some people. They hanging out. found a hell of people. Freaking Australians, too. Yeah. 
And they were like, I had... I'm going to go. Like, <laughs> it's not my business. I was just here for gold. So anyway, they called a bunch of researchers in mm. to research the people, the, mm-hmm. the new, the new, the natives. Um, and the researchers who later visited the villages soon discovered that one particular tribe called the Four, that was made up of about 11,000 people, lost about 200 people a year to an inexplicable illness. This mysterious illness had the following symptoms. The afflicted person would initially have trouble walking. They'd lose control over their emotions, which is why local people would call the the illness the laughing death. And within the year, they would have trouble getting up the floor, feed themselves, or control their bodily functions. But what's interesting about this disease is that the illness primarily hit adult women and children younger than eight years old, which led to some villages having almost no women at all. It's awful. Because the villages had so few women, this led to a few changes in the social structure of uh, the natives, which is also, I, I think it's quite interesting. So this led to men having to take up the roles of both the father and the mother. The men would sometimes be helped by their sisters and brothers' wives, um, and their small daughters would work long hours in the garden. But the men had to take on domestic activities that were previously considered the women's territory. And that included digging, planting crops, weeding, and gardening. Sometimes the men would uh, even have to cook and feed the children. <laughs> in addition, the traditional bride price started being withheld until the new wife gave birth to a child. And marriage speeches during the wedding started to include directions for the distribution of the bride's death payment. So they were, I mean, like they, they, they expected the, the woman to like die at any point. Yeah. So this really changed the way they, they distributed wealth and like the expectations they had. Yeah. Like, That's so interesting. Yeah. It's so interesting like, like that this one disease has like completely changed yeah. gender politics in this, in this society. Mm-hmm. Um, Sociologists, gender studies. I mean, I'm sure they've already studied this, what I'm saying. <laughs> So, of course, as you can imagine, Kuru was deeply disturbing to the four's social order and their future. You know, I mean, if women disappeared, there were no children. You know, they, they, their actual, like their survival, their existence was in danger. Mm-hmm. So, of course, this was an emergency. And they tried to come up with explanations for why this was happening, whether it was due to a sickness, whether it was due, whether it was due to sorcery, and also how to fix it. So, one of the running theories was that Kuru was caused by sorcerers from neighboring groups who were envious. Uh, They thought that a sorcerer would gain a part of the victim's body that could have been nail clippings, hair, feces, saliva, or even partially consumed food, such as like the skin of a sweet potato or a piece of clothing. And they would enclose the item in leaves and make it into what was called a kuru bundle and place it in swampy ground. And then as the bundle would disintegrate, the the person who was um, like afflicted would start developing the... Uh, the tremors that are characteristics to the illness. Oh. So that was like one of the, the theories that they had yeah. for what what Kuru was. Yeah, kind of similar to how how a lot of people like think about uh, like voodoo dolls. Mm-hmm. Like kind that's, of. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and so the, the four people held long public meetings where they would denounce the acts of sorcery and speak about like past like conflicts between the groups. And local leaders even proposed informing the Kiap, which was uh, the colonial government officers, that men from neighboring groups were killing their women and ask the, the leaders to take the men away and leave only the women and the children behind so that they would see if that put an end to the deaths. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, that was the, the sorcery theory. But the theory that Kuru was a form of sickness was debated as well. The four people knew that the Kiap and the Kuru investigators believed it was a sickness, so that provided some grounds for having this second theory. Mm -hmm. But, of course, um, their understanding of disease was different than that of Western people. They didn't necessarily believe in germ theory. For them, um, believing that it was an illness just meant that it was an ailment that wasn't caused by sorcery. Yeah. So this could mean that maybe it was caused by encroachments against forests, forest spirits, or maybe ghosts of dead relatives, of angry relatives or neighbors, mm. to whom they could give compensatory payments in order to be relieved, re relieved of illness. And it's kind of important to know a little bit about the four's like, social dynamic. They kind of like based and continue to base, I guess, they're still around. <laughs> they based their social relationships on an expectation that there should be a reciprocal exchange for mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and that you have to like, you give something, you get something, and that's what keeps relationships alive. And everybody sort of benefits from this. Yeah. So they thought that like, if you offend a spirit, you have to like, give them something yeah. and then they stop doing bad things to you yeah. <laughs> or if somebody does something bad to you you have the right to kill them so there's yeah. like a like a like an eye for an eye an eye, an eye but for an, an eye good way too, but also yeah but, but both in a bad way and in a, in a good way interesting um so it was very difficult for them to to grapple with uh the causes of the disease it was difficult for them to sort of accept that maybe it to, to accept sort of the western view of it mm -hmm. like they kind of believed that it was happening because of something because mm -hmm. they offended somebody or because the other ones the the neighboring groups like maybe wanted to take revenge on them yeah. in some way um and it was especially difficult because they were obviously met with conflicting views from the core investigators and the government also, because of their view of like societal rules and like societal dynamics, it was difficult for the leaders to restrain the people who believed that they had been wronged. Yeah. The four people believed in, in retaliation. Yeah. Um, the paper I was reading for this says the following. Angry men should kill just one man, destroy his dog, or cut down his banana trees. One thing was enough. <laughs> so they had to give them like, here, you can do one of these three things. You are allowed to take retaliation, but you can't like take everything from them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I thought that was I, interesting. That's very interesting that they like they, they believe in sort of a structured like tit for tat mm -hmm. almost, yeah. but that they also have like rules for how to do that like fairly. Yeah. That's so interesting to me because yeah. it's not like I'm not, it's not like cruelty here. So it's like oh you wronged me, I can wrong you. I have to. And then I wrong you exactly. Like I retaliate in a way that is um, equivalent yeah. equivalent to what you've done to me. So you have to like choose something. I get to choose something to do to you that mm -hmm. is like similar to what you did to me. So mm. you get it's like I'll, I get to choose: do I kill you, do I destroy your dog, or do I cut down your banana trees? <laughs> we talked a little bit about why. Why do they mention not kill the dog, but destroy destroy the dog? Because in my mind, like I'm I'm picturing sort of like I'm picturing sort of a guy who's been wronged, looking at a dog, sort of like like an X Man, just like looking, and the dog just explodes. <laughs> Like, That's the only way I can imagine that this works. Exploding to powder. I like that. I like I like a, I like structured justice in that in this way. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a really interesting worldview they have, and mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. Anthropology, folks, it's interesting. Yeah, um, I think medical anthropology in particular is really interesting. Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, anyway, let's go back to the to the investigation of the disease from the Western perspective. So. When you encounter an isolated population like that, 
that is affected by a mysterious illness, what is the first thing that you check? You check for mutations. The yeah. first thing that you would think about is like, okay, this is a mutation. It's spread, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a genetic, genetic illness. Yeah. That's most likely what it is. Mm -hmm. But of course, back in the 50s, researchers didn't have the same genetic tools that we have now. So the scientists, including Dr. Shirley Lindenbaum, had to go from village to village and build family trees. <laughs> so who's your dad? What? <laughs> yeah. coming from like ancestry and me, but like for medical purposes. So who's your dad? Yeah, who's your, all who's of your these people? So how many sisters do you have? Um, and of course, like you can imagine why, like if you, if you know that, okay, like your dad has it and your uncle has it and your grandpa has it, you're, you can, like you have a, yeah. an idea of like, is this a, a genetic condition? Are there certain members maybe like, uh, like more susceptible. Um, it's more susceptible, like maybe a specific sex mm -hmm. is affected more than the other. So she wanted to see if there was a pattern in infection. But what she saw discredited the genetic factor theory because the illness affected women and children in the same social group, but not in the same family group. So unrelated women Ooh. would be affected. Lindenbaum had a hunch that proved to be right. The illness was connected with funerals. Specifically, the natives would cook and eat the body of the person who had died. And this was an act of love and grief. Mm -hmm. You see, they said that if they buried the body, it would be eaten by worms. If they put the body on a platform, it would be eaten by maggots and flies. Yeah. So the four people believed that it was much better that the body would be eaten by people who loved and cared for the person who died. Yeah, very understandable, honestly. I, I get it. <laughs> like, I get it. Like, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and now I have to give a content warning. I'm gonna be, <laughs> I'm gonna be going into a graphic description of the preparation. Oh God! <laughs> uh, I... Methods. So skip a few minutes ahead if you don't want to hear. I honestly thought that the thing we were gonna content warn was the idea of cannibalism. the The way you're going to like describe the cooking I'm gonna describe... graphically is going to be very interesting. We all love criminal like podcasts right yeah for sure i read this i was like i want to include this <laughs> but to be fair like we also want to be respectful here like this like i know you know this but i'm telling the viewer that like it, this is very different from sort of western burial mm -hmm. culture mm -hmm. but like I don't know. as we but, said like we don't see anything necessarily wrong with it outside of a health benefit like outside of a health issue yeah I don't know. I don't want to sort of categorically say I don't see anything wrong with it. Um, From a but I, perspective. Yeah, well, sure. But, you know, this is, this is what they did. Yeah. And for them, uh, it was meaningful. And they had a reason for doing it. And I just, I'm just going to tell you what they did because it's interesting. Yeah. So what they did was the female kin would dismember the body in the deceased person's old sugarcane garden. And I thought the location was also interesting. You know, they had a specified a specified location for yeah. it. It was like a nice afternoon. <laughs> a nice afternoon in the sugarcane garden. And then cut open the arms and legs to strip the muscle. They would then sever the head and fracture the skull to remove the brain, which they would mix with ferns and cook in bamboo tubes. Oh. All the meat, brain, and viscera would be eaten, mostly roasted, except for the gallbladder, which they considered too bitter. <laughs> What? It's not I, good. I love that, like, all of this is so interesting. <laughs> because there was a part of me that was just like, because they thought, like, evil was stored there. No, because they're doing bitter. this from, like, a spiritual... Like, no, bitter. Like it. it doesn't taste good. That's actually... Like, that's really funny to me. Marrow was sucked from cracked bones, and sometimes the pulverized bones were cooked and eaten with green vegetables. 
and it was primarily the women who ate the, de the dead bodies, because it was believed that the dead body contains a dangerous spirit that only women's bodies are able to house and tame. That's so um, interesting. As far as the children, they would be given food by their mom and female relatives. Uh, so, you know, whatever the moms ate, that's what the kids ate as well. Mm -hmm. But it was only young children that were affected, right? And that's because when they reached about 10 years of age, the boys would go to live with the men. So the female and the male, the females oh. and the males were separated. And so there was the, the female space yeah. and the male space. And the children stayed with the women until they were like oldish enough to live with the men. Yeah. Yeah, so after they left, after the children left to eat with the men, they they didn't like interact with the women so much. They didn't they didn't like mess with that stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. So the epidemic probably started when one person in a forest village developed a random mutation causing Creutzfeldt Jacob disease, and then the incidents became amplified as people continued to consume dead bodies. As far as the situation is now, the practice of mortuary feasting has stopped more than fifty years ago. But of course, you know because prions take so long to show their effects. Cases have continued to surface for years, but I think there hasn't been a case since I think the early 2000s. So they're, they're really keeping an eye on it, mm -hmm. um, but it's looking like it's starting to, to wane. Mm -hmm. it, it, really, or not starting to wane, but it's not like appearing anymore. Yeah. It's, I think it's really impressive that like they, that, that they sort of like managed to change like a big part of like their funeral ritualty mm -hmm. because they realized like, oh, this is the cause? Yeah. The, hmm. I mean, they must have had some pretty good relations with the, or pretty good relationship with the, with the indigenous people. That's what, um, yeah. You know, like they probably like built that relationship and got them to trust, um, you know, the researchers, the local government. It's pretty impressive really. Cause yeah. you know, since, since this is so embedded in like their belief system. Yeah. It's fun to hear like medical researchers interacting with like native peoples mm -hmm. and for, for, like, the result is good. That's yeah. actually, like, really heartwarming. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess... It, it, I don't I don't know about every medical researcher, but well, at least, like, them. Yeah. They in, seem in, to be... In this case. They seem to be doing okay. And apparently, Shirley Lindenbaum, the person who made the connection between the disease and eating dead bodies, she visited a four village in 2008. And apparently, a, a man living there uh, saw her and said excitedly, See how many children we have now. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, he was that's really so cute. he was really excited and happy about it. Yeah, really proud. It must have been really horrifying, like in this village, like like uh, or in this like society for like dealing with this and not knowing mm -hmm. what it is. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, I'm so proud to have many kids now. It's yeah. so nice. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like about to cry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. The current concern of prions is probably not due to like cannibalism. Cannibalism is banned, I assume. Like, it's banned in Papua New Guinea, I know, as as a result of like this investigation. I feel like that's like probably the, the like the more direct way that people interact with other humans, like neural neural tissue. So I don't think Kuru is like I assume it's not like a huge concern anymore, right? Because like it hasn't it's not happening anymore, like in, in that sense. So that's good. But we are still concerned, sort of like um, on a global scale about prion diseases generally uh, in three specific ways. It's food, war, and wildlife. Because prion diseases have a 100% fatality rate, it is obviously something that we like want to avoid mm -hmm. in our food and as a weapon or in nature. So, you know, that, that definitely makes sense. 
So I mentioned very quickly mad cow disease earlier, uh, or an epidemic coming, and that is a type of prion disease. Uh, and this caused an outbreak in the 90s in the UK, leading to mass panic. And if you were around in the 90s, you probably remember this. I know I do. Seeing do on, you? I don't remember I do. I remember all. being like five years old and like seeing on the news really? like every day, being like, like as they said in Sweden. Uh, wow. Like mad cow disease spreading. Do, don't eat beef. Yada, yada, yada. I don't think my consciousness kicked in until like 2000. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember 9-11? No. Well, but I was also in Young. like like I was also in fucking Eastern Europe. Yeah, I was, but like, it was five a, years old. Yeah, but it was a little big event. Whatever. Um, yeah. I, I don't remember it. I was I was too. I was in kindergarten. They. I was. Roll. I was learning shapes. <laughs> they told. They rolled in a TV and showed it to us. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, this isn't about nine eleven. This is about <laughs> mad cow disease. And because of the slow nature of prions, it actually means that most of the initial infections happened like in the seventies. Which is scary. Mad cow disease leads to cattle having like an abnormal gait, changes in behavior, tremors, and hyper-responsiveness to certain stimuli. And of course, it is 100% fatal. So I, I didn't look into this, but eating meat from cows that have mad cow disease, are you going to talk about what happens with that? I will. Okay. It's, it's, it's an interesting mm-hmm. uh, story about how, how we've sort of deal with that yeah and like because i mentioned earlier right that like because not all of these... skipping from like one animal to another yeah, it's is not like almost impossible yeah yeah and it should be mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll get to that mm-hmm. it's, it's a very interesting though so it's good to ask now the reason why this epidemic happened is pretty messed up because it probably happened because cattle were being fed ground up meat and bones from sheep and other cows and... i don't think that's supposed to happen they, <laughs> they are not supposed to eat meat i think no i think they can cows I think it's mixed in with like grains and other things, like as a sort of cow feed generally. That's, okay, yeah. but like they're herbivores, so do they have the enzymes to digest meat? I don't know, but they were being I'm, fed it. Yeah, so I mean, I, yeah, I guess it was common I guess practice. So. I guess so. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not an animal. I'm not a zoologist. I don't know how it works, but I'm very surprised. <laughs> it, yeah. But like, I do know that that like horses can eat. They can eat like. Yeah. If you like release chickens around horses, <sighs> like they can snatch some up. <laughs> it's awful so i guess deer can snatch up birds yeah so i guess it's not uncommon i heard a theory not so long ago that like the idea of like a herbivore doesn't really exist it's just like their stomachs they are good at at digesting yeah like they're specialized at that and they might get sick from eating meat but they can Hmm. interesting they're just not like specialized for it It, it's horrific but anyway and because prions are just messed up proteins this could have happened like initially by chance. Like one cow had a random mutation, got a prion, got ground up into beef and fed to other cows and thus it spreads. And it's important for food safety because there's a version of mad cow disease that can infect humans too. And we don't actually have any like methodological data for it. We don't have any like scientific backing for like how it happens. But as the epidemic happened in the 90s among cows like 200 cows like a day were being infected uh, i think 2000 cows at like the peak of the epidemic were being infected uh, good year to be a vegan good year to be a vegan that same year in the uk that's when the epidemic happened among humans mm-hmm. and this is called variant creutzfeldt jacobs disease mm-hmm. um and there's no evidence that like this is mad cow disease but like epidemic in mad cow disease starts and then a couple of years later variant hmm. 
Kreutzfeldt Jacob's thesis happens too. And the vast, overwhelming amount of this is happening in the UK, like 80% at least, with the remaining like 18% happening in, with the remaining happening in Europe. There are four cases in the US, and they all got it from Europe. Hmm. Um, so do they not study this? I mean, surely, you know, I mean, probably a lot of people died. Mm-hmm. So did they not? Oh, people are still dying, it? actually. Yeah. It's still, it's still cropping up occasionally. Yeah. So I'm just wondering how come this isn't studied? How come we just have like the Well, they have connection. studied, but okay. we have studied, but we, we don't have sort of like, I don't think anyone has like managed in a lab setting to sort of like get mad cow disease into human like neural tissue. Like to get that to spread, it just we just haven't figured out how it works. Hmm. But the the events overlap like so almost like so perfectly. It's almost guaranteed yeah. to must be happened that way. Kind of sucks um, how it's so infectious, but not in the lab though. Not in the lab though. <laughs> it will spread from like you know from like piss in the from, river stream. Yeah, like you you get a sniff of piss from a different room and you get it. But no, not in the lab. Not in the lab. Sorry, I'm allergic to tap water. Yeah. But um, because of, because of this overlap, almost all scientists think that eating infected meat can lead to humans being infected too. And because it takes years for symptoms to show up, it's still happening today. Like people are still getting very Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and probably will for a while too, because this is takes like decades. Takes takes a decade. I think it's like two to ten years uh, incubation time. Yes, for human mycotic disease. For human, yeah. Um, but once symptoms start showing up. Almost all patients die within a year. Yeah. Uh, it is... Isn't it kind of terrifying to, like, live in the UK and be like, you know, this... I ate meat Ate meat in the year. 90s. Yeah. Hope it's not me. Hope it wasn't infected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently that's, uh, that's scary, because I don't think you can test for it either. Like, it's it's just... It could linger, and then you get it, and then you die. Yeah. Horrifying. I mean, you can't test it, because, like I said, those proteins exist in... In the body, yeah, so they're just misfolded. Like, exactly. How, how are we going to test for like a very? Uh, but they they don't they're not even misfolded yet. I think they misfold at some point. Oh, I don't know, but I don't even know how that works. Today, though, mad cow disease is like much much lower than it was in the nineties, uh, and there are multiple new security measures in place to like prevent the spread of of mad cow disease among cows and also like to spread it to humans. First of all, neurological tissue doesn't show up in beef anymore. For some reason, people used to ground off uh, cow brains. Don't do that anymore. Like, so if you get ground off beef, it shouldn't have brain in it this time. Which, you know, is going to lower the amount of, like, prions, like, available, hopefully. Also, cows are fed better food now. They don't feed them, like, ground up other cows now. <laughs> they have, there are new laws in place uh, that say that cows have to be fed, like, actual good cow food. <laughs> and not just ground up, like, cows and sheep. Um, and... Yeah, this seems to have worked. The epidemic seems to have sort of like been stemmed, uh, although it it is still happening and people are people still get it every single year in Europe. So it's it's it is scary. Another security measure is that if you're in the U.S., you can't donate blood if you had a blood transfusion in Europe, because prions can spread via blood too. Um, not surprising. Not surprising, and yeah, because why? <laughs> why should anything be easy? <laughs> Now, another concern about prions is as a type of biological weapon. Some nefarious people could intentionally, like, infect the food supply with prions in an area that they wanted to cause harm in, in the long term. This is particularly risky because 
There is the possibility of creating synthetic prions that act in unsuspecting ways compared to other prion diseases. This is already done in lab settings to study prions, so it's definitely possible. And many of these synthetic prions have a shorter incubation period, again, for like study purposes, because you can't wait like 10 years to study, you know? And this means that like one of the largest like barriers to effectiveness is reduced, because like if it takes shorter time, better weapon. Although this reduction is only in like a couple of years and doesn't translate to like diseases that cause like traditional epidemics, like as we know, like in bacteria and viruses, like mm-hmm. it's not gonna like one year incubation time and then it kills everyone. Like that, mm-hmm. they haven't been able to do that yet. Yeah, it would be really awkward to like infect, I guess, a region with prions and then like a few years later to like reach some sort of like arrangement with them, <laughs> some sort of like peaceful. <laughs> peaceful arrangement and be like fuck yeah um, yeah that's actually that's actually one of the reasons why it's probably wouldn't be a great bioweapon mm-hmm. uh, if, if you're in a conflict with someone you need sp- speedy action yeah like you can't just be like oh, I'm in conflict with someone 10 years from now you will be I'm sorry go- you will be sorry <laughs> like that that's not an effective I think like, thing. but I think that the other reason why it's not a very good bioweapon is that it's I mean it's so infective it's really easy to infect your own people yeah so it's 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 really hard to work with safely. Exactly. So like you 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 don't want that. Mm-mm. You don't want to infect your own people. And just go with anthrax like normal people. <laughs> or just bombs. Bombs. Bombs, bombs are, have an incubation period of like, like now. the speed of sound. <laughs> the <laughs> now. Speed of now. <laughs> um, but the really scary thing though, the really thing that like some institutes are actually worried about is that prions have shown interactivity with other infectious agents such as the influenza A virus or HIV one. And in theory, according to some like national security agencies in the US at least, it could be possible to use this to create a synthetic prion that targets particular parts of the population, either to target people who have a particular disease or people Mm. with unique genetic codes. As in, you could target a particular ethnic group with a prion that only affects them. Oh, that's not good news. This is not possible right now. From our current understanding of prions and from our current like scientific ability, we can't do this, so don't worry. But maybe we could. Yeah. And that's not a weapon that we really want. That's just like a genocide button. So some like agencies are a bit worried about this potentially being developed in the future. So you know, if you start hearing about like prion bioweapons in the future, like no, that, that's the scary part. <laughs> this isn't a huge concern though, because um, it would still probably take a long time and we're still learning a lot about prions. Uh, we can't make it into like an effective bioweapon with current science, so people aren't really like preparing for it, really. And as you said, it could easily find its way into your population, and you know, then you sort of undercut everything. And also, like you said, <laughs> you could be best friends with the enemy that you just infected, just like two years from now, and then it's like, ooh, oops, <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> But prion diseases are also a concern in the wild animal populations. We mentioned, uh, for example, chronic wasting disease in deer populations. And that is caused by prions, which can cause all sorts of horrific symptoms. It's also called zombie deer disease um, for good reason. Because deer can begin walking in set patterns over and over. They become more rigid in movements, can experience spasms, stop interacting with other animals. And they also lose their fear of humans. And there's also some horrific stories about, like, hunters seeing deer, like, essentially kill themselves on rocks because they can't, like, control their movements properly. Mm. Um, Yeah, I saw, I think, uh, a description of, like, prion disease in uh, primates. 
Mm. And apparently something that's also kind of scary is like they go from being very like limp and unresponsive to like having like fits of rage. So they go from very, yeah, um, yeah they, they just like change moods super rapidly. Yeah. And it, it's really scary. Yeah, it's just... It's not good. Yeah. And uh, this is actually spreading in deer populations in the US mm-hmm. right now. Like it's an epidemic. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, I think in the Midwest, mm-hmm. um, and you see deer, you know, they, they, they could have it. And how scary would it be to be a hunter? Could be kind of scary, yeah. How, I mean, how do you know? Well, so far, this hasn't spread to humans yet. There's been no recorded cases of, of chronic racing disease spreading to humans. But no, it's still sure. bad for... For deer, obviously, mm-hmm. like deer populations on their own are something we care about because we love nature. Um, but it could also, but it could also spread to other animals, uh, and could, in theory, maybe infect farm animals. Mm-hmm. And that's when we start getting worried, because yeah. you know, then it would find its way into the food supply. But I'm just, I'm just wondering, is there any effect at all from eating infected meat? Like, if you're an, if you're a person eating meat from a deer with chronic wasting disease, I couldn't find it. Yeah, as far like it's. It's entirely possible, but as far as I could see, no. no. But many states do offer free testing. But as far as I can tell, that's more for sort of like wildlife conservation. That's like hunters are, like they take their animals to be tested for chronic racing disease. And uh, if the meat has it, then then they know that. And they can ask like, where did you hunt? Hmm. What area were you? When did you hunt? And they can sort of track the spread of it. But also... When animals have chronic racing disease, they don't take care of themselves that well, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're much more likely to be dehydrated, to be malnourished, to accumulate parasites because their immune systems are lower because of those things, which means that many times people, there, there are other health concerns that sort of like are a result of like neurological damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could lead to the meat not being sort of like desirable to eat. Mm. That's interesting. So, but not the primes themselves, but like, yeah. like other things in the meat. I also, I think it's interesting. You said they test the meat. How do they test the meat to find the misfolded proteins? Oh, th- that's uh, um, because then we just say earlier that it's it's kind of impossible to see if you have the the illness, right? It is. If you're alive, mm-hmm. you can check for dead. So like when you hunt, right? Like you take the entire carcass. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess they don't test the meat like a, like a steak. They test the brain. They test the brain. Mm -hmm. And they have to do uh, like a full on like Okay, do they look at the morphology? Do they look at the morphology of the brain? Like if it's holy? Maybe. I think that that might be it. I I just know that they have to sort of slice the brain open. Okay. That's like the brain the animal cannot be alive when you do this. Okay. Then it's probably morphology. But then I guess it would have to be like super developed illness because the holes the spongy texture kind of develops like a bit later. Yeah. I they they I don't think they can check if, if an animal is just infected, but not showing symptoms. But it, 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 uh, they, they, they check once it has symptoms, though. Yeah. So that is, a thing, mm. that is something that they can check. Many states offer it for free. So if you're a hunter in the Midwest, you know, check. Um, and this spreads, like you mentioned, but like deer, like they pee and poop mm-hmm. in the forest, like animals, because they, they are animals. They pee and poop. They pee and poop. Fart. And they, it spreads in the plants that they eat and... It just spreads, which means that there's, you know, there are there are parts of the U.S. at this point that have just like a like a nice little film, essentially in the grass and the leaves of chronic wasting disease prions. So think about that on your next hike. 
So that is our episode on prions, those nasty little evil, uh, malformed, greedy, and lustful things in our in our brains, potentially, that will kill people who have it, unfortunately, but has a long incubation time. Mm-hmm. And science is still being done. Like, people are still doing, like, basic science on this thing. Yeah. I think the thing with prions is they're not, like, an immediate concern. So they're not... Yeah. There's not that much research being done. Like a lot more research is being done about cancer, about like COVID, about yeah. you know things like that. So it's not like a we'll, huge pressing. No, concern. it's not a huge pressing concern. So we'll see how far science gets in 10, 20 years mm-hmm. if we know anything more about Brian's. Um, Are we going to return follow up episode in, in twenty years? Yeah. Brian update. Yeah, uh, but super interesting. I really enjoyed doing this episode. I think. Do you remember how I actually came up with the idea to? do this episode yeah. i saw this green text of i think it's a really really popular one you've you you've probably heard it um dear listener it's like this um this green text of a hunter uh seeing a, a deer smash its head on a rock and then getting up on its hind legs and walking into the river yeah with like half a half a head <laughs> like brain leaking out mm-hmm. which may actually be like a weirdly true story yeah if if a bit exaggerated. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if they get up on their hind legs, but um yeah. So I really enjoyed doing this episode. I feel like I've learned a lot. Uh Me thank too. you. <laughs> thank you again. <laughs> what? Am I also I also learned a lot. What do you mean? <laughs> thank you again to all our patrons who are supporting this show and to you who is listening. Remember to leave us a review if you liked this episode. Um yeah. On Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you're listening. Please do. It really helps podcasts. It really does. Tell your friends. Tell your dear. Of the podcast. We don't pay to advertise. So, you, we, you know, like word of mouth is how we spread. And if you like, if you want more people to listen to this, so you can talk to like your grandma about like the nice medical podcast that you listen to. You know, you got to tell them. <laughs> spread it around. Yeah. All right. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next time. Bye.